So Anna Freud's loom. Um, according to that's Anna Freud and her loom. Um, according to her friend, colleague, and fellow weaver Manna Friedman, Anna Freud took up weaving in 1955, the same year she bought two second-hand looms. The first she used in her London home in Maresfield Gardens, now the Freud Museum. It's currently in storage. The photograph from 1982 indicates that it originally stood in her bedroom. The second, now lost, Anna Freud used in her countryside home in Suffolk. Manna Friedman, the sole survivor of a German Jewish family murdered in the Holocaust, had worked with groups of children in an Israeli kibbutz before moving to England in the early 1940s. The, that's Manna Friedman on the right. Um, the two women met in 1946 when Friedman worked at Weir Courtney in Surrey, a residential home for the youngest survivors of the concentration camps. Though she told Anna Freud that she did not want to work with children psychoanalytically, preferring to focus on their egos rather than their unconscious mental processes, Anna Freud nevertheless, nevertheless asked Friedman to manage the Hampstead Nursery School, which she founded in 1957. The nursery aimed to provide a service to the local community Though by the mid-1960s, the children were predominantly poor, underprivileged, and often from homes of recent immigrants, particularly from Jamaica. The nursery also aimed to offer those working there with the opportunity to study normal childhood development. And the word normal apparently needed emphasising because some parents were anxious about allowing their children to become objects of study. Friedman accepted Anna Freud's offer and managed the nursery for 21 years. From 1957, the year opened to 1978. In her short and candid account of weaving with Anna Freud, Friedman describes how in her later life the psychoanalyst would ask for her help in dressing the loom, as if a loom without its warp were in a state of undress, naked or nude. Every weaver needs a friend, Anna Freud explained to her, and Friedman became that friend. She writes, The warp had been prepared by Anna Freud in London. It had to be threaded onto the loom, and for this, two people were needed. Colours had to be chosen, bobbins wound, shuttles and all the paraphernalia of the craft sorted out. Anna Freud was as meticulous in her handicraft as she was in the craft of writing. After drawing an analogy between the craft of weaving and that of writing, and it is noteworthy that the word text stems from the Latin verb tessere, to weave, which reminds us that writing is something we still do with our hands and bodies, and by association, that writing is first a form of drawing. Friedman describes how, while working at her loom, Anna Freud would think about and prepare in her mind the paper she was working on, or think about her patients or the friend to whom she planned to gift the woven object. It was Anna Freud's idea, she writes, that people who worked with their mind needed a creative activity which also involved their hands for a good balance. It would seem that for Anna Freud, weaving undid the opposition between manual and intellectual labour usually associated with craft, the one feeding into the other. Friedman also observes, with a smile, 
that Anna Freud's absorption in her tasks was such that she would hesitate to interrupt her. Weaving and psychoanalysis feel intuitively connected. It's meant to be black, thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, but maybe, I can, maybe it's better with that, actually. Um, weaving and psychoanalysis make intuitively connected, or, or feel intuitively connected. Um, so it was surprising um, when researching this paper to find that only little has been written about the relationship between the two disciplines, and that nothing of significance apart from Friedman's text has been written about Anna Freud's loom. Of course, in the psychoanalytic literature, metaphors for, we for weaving abound. Sigmund Freud, Anna Freud's father, famously wrote that psychoanalysis, I quote, supplies the thread that leads a man out of the labyrinth of his own unconscious, unquote, referring here to the myth of Ariadne of Crete and the Minotaur. He used the same metaphor to describe the time of daydream and fantasy, an activity that for him began in childhood play. To quote Freud again, past, present, and future are strung together, as it were, on the thread of the wish that runs through them, unquote. Suggesting that daydreams and fantasies are akin to tapestries in which the no longer and the not yet are woven into an always unfolding present. The only extended reference to weaving in Freud's work is encountered in The Interpretation of Dreams, a book which, perhaps unsurprisingly, contains the most weaving metaphors in his writings. In Chapter 6, The Dream Work, Freud cites Mephistopheles in Goethe's Faust in order to show how nodal points are characteristic of dreams and the fabric of mental life at large. The passage links the logic of dream work to weaving, but also to industrial production. Truly, the fabric of mental fleece resembles a weaver's masterpiece, where thousand threads one treadle throws, where fly the shuttles hither and thither, unseen the threads are knit together, and an infinite combination <coughs> grows. A weaver's masterpiece is an evocative, perhaps romantic, way of describing what a dream might look and feel like. The passage also well describes how a dream is overdetermined, composed of innumerable strands tangled or knotted together in nodal points, which, when unraveled, lend themselves to any number of associations. The passage also gives a sense of the mechanical and impersonal character of dream work. The dreaming mind is a factory of thoughts, as Freud puts it in the same chapter, and dreams are produced on another scene of articulation, occupied here by the industrial loom, a figure of the unconscious. The process of weaving is unseen, Mephistopheles says. And if you read on, not Freud's citation, but Goethe's original, you immediately find an account of a textile's resistance to logical and indeed chronological interpretation which is true whether that textile was dreamt or woven. These words also belong to Mephistopheles, who is speaking here to the same uncomprehending student as in the passage cited by Freud. Then the philosopher steps in and shows no otherwise it could have been. The first was so, the second so, therefore the third and fourth are so. Were not the first and second, then the third and fourth had never been. The scholars are everywhere believers, Mephistopheles adds, but never succeed in being weavers. Perhaps you'll allow me one more example. 
This one belongs to the psychoanalyst Alashar. In a chapter of dream analysis called The Mechanisms of Dream Formation, she recounts how one of her patients, a young woman, established the loom as a symbolic representation of the primal scene. The patient in question had recalled a memory of infancy, she was only one at the time, in which on a visit to the countryside, she had shared an old-fashioned four-poster bed with her parents. The region, probably Norwich, was known for its silk-weaving looms, which the woman had often visited as a child. She remembered being fascinated by the swift swinging of the shuttle. As Sharp observes, the big four-square loom was equated with a bed, the flying shuttle with a penis, the thread with semen, the making of the material from the thread with a child, the snapping of the thread in the shuttle, which in actual weaving caused a cessation of work, symbolized castration. I believe that these are the only important references to weaving in psychoanalytic literature that we can assume Anna Freud would have known about. Weaving as metaphor, weaving as a form of industrial production, and the loom as unconscious dream machine, weaving as a symbol for the primal scene. What is immediately striking about the image of Anna Freud at her loom, however, and about the textiles and fabrics she produced, is that they do not seem to fit easily with these precedents. She worked at home, alone or sometimes with a friend. This made her work collaborative. It took place on the lateral axis of friendship, and so quite different in character to industrial production and its attendant divisions of labour. As Friedman notes, Anna Freud also used the time of weaving as a time for thinking. Her hand, body and mind entered into dialogue with each other and with the loom, itself both constraining and enabling. And this allowed her to get to know and think with her internal objects, patients, friends, ideas. Thought about in this way, you could say that even when she was alone, Anna Freud never worked alone. These dialogues would then find some kind of shape or expression in the internal structures, the warps and the wefts, of the resulting fabrics, and not in an obviously symbolic way, and I'll have some examples in a moment. And while in Ella Sharp's case study, the snapping of the thread in the shuttle and the cessation of labor are understood to symbolize castration, it was in her leisure time that Anna Freud worked, or perhaps played. Craft, I think, sits at the juncture of work and play, at her loom. In any case, hers was not a form of alienated labor. Anna Freud's textiles also offer a stark contrast, they're coming, uh, to the fabrics favored by her father. The weaves produced by the loom or dream machine Mephistopheles describes in Goethe's Faust would probably look like the famous Quashkai Sakali wool rug that still covers the bed upon which Sigmund Freud's patients would lie down, free associate, and recount their dreams. What is strange about this image is the way in which fabrics seem to cover nearly every surface of the room, their patterns unraveling into each other like tendrils. Anna Freud's weaves are comparatively simple and functional, even austere. In her text, Friedman recounts how one of her silk weaves was placed on the table where Anna Freud held her seminars. She may have felt that it would be conducive to thinking and to learning. Others were designed to cover a bed, pillow, or sofa, including the couch upon which Anna Freud's patients would recount the biography of their symptoms. These are made up of different hues of white or gray, 
yellows and browns, and include minimal abstract designs or motifs in their compositions. In the present example, labelled Anna Freud and Manner, a series of white lozenges repeated across the width of the fabric contains a series of smaller white circles. The regularity of the pattern shows how carefully Anna Freud and Manner handled the threads while working at the loom. The same might be said for this fabric, made out of cotton and silk, a material that reflects the light. The different modes of production are also significant. The reference to Faust in Freud's dream book, Freud would use the same citation when accepting the Goethe Prize in 1930, the one about the dream machine, um, and it, or the Weaver's masterpiece. And it is suggested that he won a prize generally reserved for literature and not the Nobel Prize for science he so coveted. That tells us something about his own heroic, romantic, perhaps Faustian predilections. The reference also invo invokes Freud's family history in wool trade in Freiburg and later in Manchester, where Immanuel Freud, Sigmund Freud's brother, traded textiles and occupied a residency that doubled up as a cotton warehouse. Manchester, or Cottonopolis, as it was then sometimes called, was also the city where Friedrich Engels researched working conditions in textile factories, resulting in the publication of The Condition of the Working Class in England in 1853. Had there been more time, it would have been interesting to think more deeply about the relationship between dream work, industrial weaving, and the commodity. In the interpretation of dreams, Freud described the unconscious as a dream entrepreneur. With Anna Freud, however, the industrial loom is replaced by a hand loom, machine work and mass production by craft, heroism by a form of pragmatism. It is also important that Anna Freud's weaves should have often been exchanged as gifts. The ones you've seen are pretty much the only ones left. Gift giving being a different economy of exchange than the exchange of commodities. Um, that's meant to be blank. Um, Anna Freud and Manna Friedman, both Jewish emigres, turned to weaving in the wake of the Second World War. The image of Anna Freud at her loom cannot be seen outside of this history. Sigmund Freud's four sisters stayed behind in Vienna when the rest of the family emigrated to London in 1938. Ten years later, shortly after the war ended, Anna Freud learned that she had been killed in different, that they had been, excuse me, they had been killed in different concentration camps. Yet the figure of the modernist artist as weaver, Annie Albers, um, just like the figure of the analyst as weaver, feels more pragmatic and reparative than it does melancholic, more concerned with developing the capacity to construct new patterns out of old ones than becoming both internally and externally fixated on their loss. In this respect, and I'm grateful to Bryony Fur for this reference, the mid-18th century Norwich weavers described in W.G. Sebel's Austerlitz are both paradigmatic and prototypical. These men, the narrator claims, laboured under the sign of Saturn. He describes how their bodies were strapped to silk looms that were akin to instruments of torture and observes how, like scholars and writers, the Norwich weavers tended to suffer from melancholia. This was due to the nature of their work. They were forced to sit, sit bent over day after day, straining to keep their eyes on the complex patterns they created, lost in labyrinths of their own making. They were pursued, he says, both in waking life and in dreams by, I quote, the feeling that they had got hold of the wrong thread, unquote. 
The image of the Norfolk weavers survives, I think, in images of Jewish weavers during the Second World War. This one, for example, of women prisoners weaving textiles in a workshop in an unnamed labour camp. Or this one, a truly dialectical image of men and working, men and women working in a weaving shop in the Lodz ghetto in Poland in 1944. Yet Anna Freud's loom invites other ways of thinking about what it means to weave and to write, and indeed to mourn, processes that cannot be accounted for by the regression of the libido into the ego that constitutes melancholia, a powerful, perhaps also seductive, structure of feeling that continues to shape our understanding both of psychoanalysis and artistic modernism. Anna Freud's life work comprised a search for useful social applications of psychoanalysis, above all in treating and learning from children. This included an education of the senses. The often displaced children at the Hampstead School Nursery, for example, were taught how to weave on what I imagine must have been toy looms. I could not find a photograph, but this one of children playing with sand at the Hampstead Nursery gives a sense of Anna Freud's privileging of play and the sensorium as a means to psychic reparation. It was her belief that the external structures provided by and produced in play could help to repair internal ones. You could say that what Anna Freud did for psychoanalysis, Annie Albers, another Jewish emigre, did for art. And it is noteworthy that both women lived for most of the long 20th century. Anna Freud was born in 1895 and died in 1892. Annie Albers was born in 1899 and died in 1994. This is not only because the latter explored the relationship between the aesthetic and the utilitarian or functional, and it is also noteworthy that both figures um, were interested in John Dewey's pragmatism and in his theories of education. It is also because she learnt from art's prehistory, its infancy perhaps. Infance means without language, specifically verbal language. Particularly striking in this context are the pictorial weavings that invoke pre-verbal or non rather sorry, not pre-verbal, non-verbal forms of writing by weaves and knots used in ancient Peruvian civilizations. There's a work like Red Meander, which is composed of cotton and linen. The word meander designates a decorative border constructed from a continuous line and shaped into a repeated motif. A meander is also the figure of a labyrinth in linear form and so a figure of the unconscious. There's also a weaving like pictographic, which recalls Freud's description of dreams and symptoms as pictographic scripts. And I didn't include Camino Real because I couldn't find an image of the lost object, uh, but, it, but Camino Real translates as royal road and Freud described dreams of the, the interpretation of dreams as the royal road to the unconscious. The connection between Annie Albers and Anna Freud is coincidental, I think, or, or rather Annie Albers and Annie Freud, that sort of shared sort of register, a matter of a shared heritage rather than influence. But a great deal of pleasure can be taken in getting lost in the intricacies of patterns. I think this is because there's a sense that you will always find your thread. The same might be said for weaving. A grid can function in many ways, including as a means of orientation and as a holding pattern. Anna Freud never wrote about the practice of weaving. Yet her loom seems to have provided her with the means to reflect on the possibilities of psychoanalysis, to rethink assumptions about what the unconscious might look and feel like, and how it might come to be structured or restructured in the wake of trauma. 
On this view, it is noteworthy that the texture of her writing should feel the same as the texture of her weavings. Weaving metaphors are frequent in her father's work, yet they are tellingly absent in Anna Freud's, which are marked by their pragmatic, perhaps concrete, character. The same might be said for her work at the loom and for the complex processes, psychic, aesthetic, relational, reparative, that were enacted there. There is one text, though, which reads as an attempt to think mourning beyond melancholy, and which might relate to her weave, might re help me relate her weaving to her writing. The paper is called On Losing and Being Lost, written in 1953, but only published in 1967. It describes the psychopathology of losing and its relation to mourning, and traces the various processes through which the mourner becomes identified with the objects he or she loses, and how those lost objects somehow become identified with the mourner. The most suggestive example is related to children Anna Freud called chronic losers, children with whom she worked in the Hampstead nurseries, war nurseries, an institution that would evolve into the nursery managed by her friend and fellow weaver, Manna Friedman. These children, Anna Freud wrote, who always lost their possessions, would live out a double identification, passively with the lost objects, which symbolized themselves, actively with the parents whom they experienced to be as neglectful, indifferent, and unconcerned, unconcerned towards them as they were themselves towards their possessions. For Sigmund Freud, writing in Mourning and Melancholia, the internalization of the lost object was pathological. For successful mourning to take place, the lost object had to be relinquished in the outer world and in the inner world, where it would be lost, as it were, for a second time. The losing of an object is, in fact, a re-losing of it, to reverse one of Freud's well-known descriptions. In her paper, Hannah Freud argues instead that for the mourner, it is both necessary and useful to incorporate and identify with, to incorporate and identify with the lost object, since this can help to sustain and reorganize li the life of the living. I agree that mourning is a terrible task, she wrote to a friend in 1969, condensing her views on the subject. Surely the most difficult of all, and it is only made bearable by the moments when one feels fleetingly that the lost person has entered into one and that there is a game somewhere which denies death. To mourn, and perhaps also to weave and to write, is not to live in the past for Anna Freud. It is to maintain the lost object in some of its integrity and to learn from it. It is to err on the side of life. Thanks. <laughs>